7, Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 1, Romans 7, starting in verse 1, or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives, thus a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is still alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. Let me pray. Lord, we ask that you would help us with this text. Help us to understand what your Apostle Paul was communicating to us about your gospel and how we grow in sanctification, about the law and the flesh and our sin and all that's involved with that, Lord, that you would give us clarity of thought, um, that we would rejoice in you and recognize what your gospel does for us in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there are several views out there about how a Christian grows. How does a Christian grow or change or become more like Christ? How does a Christian overcome habitual sin, etc.? And I, I've seen actually multiple streams of thought about how, it come, how this happens. Multiple streams. One is kind of a psychological stream of thought. If I can just root out your past and figure out why what's happened in the background and why you doing what you're doing, then you'll start to grow spiritually. There's a psychiatric sort of stream, which says, if I can figure out what's wrong with you chemically, if I can figure out what's wrong with you chemically, then maybe you can start to grow more of a positive thinking stream. A third one I've seen is this kind of positive thinking stream, which basically says, if I can just get you to embrace who you are, Believe in yourself. Know that you're really a lot better than you've ever believed before. Then, then we would see growth. There's kind of a spiritual formation stream that's running around out there, which is, if I could just get you to practice the right disciplines, just get you to practice the right disciplines, especially the monastic-looking ones where you go off into the forest and contemplate. If I could just get you to do it, then you'll grow. There's... What, for lack of a better term, I call the discipleship stream of thought, which is, if I could just stop getting you, or get you to stop being a carnal Christian. You know what I mean by that term? If I could just get you to stop being a person who says they're saved, but has no interest in walking with the Lord. If I could just change that through the right discipleship techniques, then you might start being serious and grow. Or the religious stream of thought. If you could just go to church enough, take communion enough, get baptized, tithe, 
Get baptized again if the first time didn't work out. Tithe more if it's not working out. And find other means to get in God's good graces somehow. Then you'll change. And then there's um, what's been become increasingly popularized today, which is the charismatic stream, which is that if I could just get you to have enough spiritual experiences, then you'll change. Then you'll grow. Now, there's some truth in some of these schools of thought. However, the error that every single one of them makes is the error of misunderstanding the relationship between justification and sanctification. They misunderstand the relationship between justification and sanctification. They don't understand the relationship between how we get saved and are forgiven, declared righteous justification and how we then change or grow in holiness, sanctification. They don't understand that relationship. They somehow think that life change and growth in holiness either isn't guaranteed when they're saved and thus they have to bring it about or that they must bring it about to be justified in the first place. I've got to be holy in order for God to declare me such. Either way, the problem with all these streams of thought is they think that real life change or sanctification, growth in holiness is up to them. Either way, it's the problem. They think it's up to us. In other words, as Paul condemns in Galatians, you were saved by faith. You received the Holy Spirit by faith. Why now do you think you need to run after the law or good works? In some cases, in fact, people are absolutely convinced that the gospel of free grace doesn't help its sanctification at all. In fact, they think the emphasis on the free, radical, superabounding grace of God in Christ actually encourages more sin and lawlessness. They say it like this. You're saying someone can be saved apart from keeping the law. That won't produce holiness. That'll produce more sin. In Romans 7, 4 through 6, Paul responds to that and provides us a reason why the gospel of free grace in Christ produces holiness where the law failed to. The gospel produces holiness where the law failed to. And that's what Paul wants to make clear to us. Not only does it save us, not only does it justify us, it sanctifies us. It makes us holy. He provides us with the answer to how sanctification happens really in a nutshell. One of the things I like about Romans 7, 4 through 6 is kind of a nutshell um, doctrine or section of scripture on how sanctification happens. Paul kind of sums up everything he says in the rest of Romans 7 and in through Romans, through the majority of Romans 8. He kind of summarizes in these verses here. And Paul is dealing with the same objection here that we're dealing with. Here's the objection. Certainly, if someone is saved and secured by Christ through faith alone, and if their sin abounds and grace abounds all the more, 
certainly then this teaching will just encourage sin, not holiness. Well, let's take a view at Paul's gospel and how radical it is and why it seems to bring up this question and how it answers this question. If you've been with us through any of Romans or if you've been listening to the sermons, you started with us two and a half years ago at Romans chapter 1. And we came to Romans 1.16 and it said this. Paul says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. For the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. For as it is written, the just or the righteous shall live by faith. Why does Paul need to preach the good news of the fact that the righteousness of God is ours through faith? Why does he need to preach that? Because, verse 18 of chapter 1, For the wrath of God is revealed against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what could be known about God has been made plain to them. But what? If you go down through Romans 1, they've exchanged the truth about God for a lie. So God's wrath is abiding upon us because He made himself known to us in the heavens. And he said, obey me. And we rejected him. And so he says, you need the gospel. He goes on. In fact, Paul wants to make it really clear that you cannot generate the righteousness of God through the law or through your own good works. You can't do it. And so he wants to make it clear. And so Romans 3, 9, in case he wasn't clear in the last two chapters, he says this. What then? Are we Jews any better off? Certainly not. For we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none. How many? None is righteous. You need the righteousness of God to be saved. You need that. But as is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. In case you're still not convinced, Paul goes on in verse 19 and says this. Now we know that whatever the law says... It speaks to those who are under the law, under its realm, dominion, authority, power, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. In other words, what the law says holds us accountable. It doesn't save us. It holds us accountable. It condemns us. It demonstrates our sin. And he says in verse 20, for by works, the works of the law, no human being. How many human beings? No human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And then he goes on to this glorious two words that he repeats in chapter 7, verse 6. But now. Martin Lloyd-Jones actually said, he questions whether you're a Christian if you don't get excited when you see but now in one of Paul's letters. But now. The righteousness of God 
has been manifested apart from the law. Hear that? Apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God, how? Through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. He wants to bring you back to the fact that you're a sinner again and don't have a chance. says this, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified. How? How are you forgiven and declared righteous? As a gift. As a gift. By grace, right? Through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God. In other words, what Paul is saying at this but now, you can't be righteous enough. Can't. You can't. But now, God will provide the righteousness that he requires. And how will he provide the righteousness he requires? Through Jesus Christ. You can't be good enough. But now, God will provide the righteousness he requires of you. Paul goes on, in fact, in Romans 4. To establish that justification, the forgiveness of our sins and declaring to be righteous, that justification has always been through faith. In other words, he wants to show those who are reading, this isn't new. It's new in its historical fulfillment in Christ, but it isn't new in that this has always been promised. And this is, in fact, how Abraham was justified. And so in chapter 4, verse 4, he says this. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies, that's declares to be righteous, the, what, ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Do you hear that? This is the exact opposite of us doing anything, isn't it? It is justification, the declaration of our righteousness and the forgiveness of our sins by the free grace of God earned for us in Jesus Christ. And that's it. The law showed us we're sinful and that we need Christ, but it couldn't possibly, couldn't possibly produce the righteousness we need. Paul's making that clear. But he wants to take it further and up the ante some more. And so in Romans 5, he says this, verse 1, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, since this is true, that we've been forgiven of our sins and justified or declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom... Through him, excuse me, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope. Read, instead of the word hope, read the word certainty there because that's what they mean. In the certainty of the glory of God. Hear that? Because Jesus saved us, we now stand in grace and have access to God and will certainly be saved and be glorified with him because of what Jesus did. And he's upping the ante. He wants to make it clear. So go down to verse 8. 
God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We're sinners. Jesus died for us. Demonstration of the love of God. But he goes on, he says this, since therefore we've now been justified by his blood. Listen to this. Much more, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Here's what Paul's saying. Jesus saved you. He justified you, forgave you, declared you righteous. God sent Christ to do that while you're his enemies. While you're his enemies. God sent Jesus to do that while you're his enemies. Now, you believers, are you really ever going to worry about whether or not that God who saved you while you're his enemies is going to keep you? If he did that while you're his enemies, how much more now that you're his friends will he save you to the uttermost? How much more? If he loves you enough for his grace to abound to you in such an incredibly promiscuous way while you're his enemies, how much more will his grace abound to his friends? That's what Paul's saying. And he says all this is in Christ. And he goes on and he makes this statement that then provokes the question. It's already coming. You can hear the question coming, can't you? This is just all free. I don't do anything. I'm a sinner. God saves me. He declares me to be righteous like Jesus is. I've done nothing except trusted him. He's done everything. The law shows me I'm a sinner. All you're saying is I need to trust. But this is seeming too easy, isn't it? Seems way too easy. He's going to save me to the end. He's going to, grace is going to superabound even when I sin. And look at what he says. Paul's like, well, no, I'll take it a step further just in case you don't understand how promiscuous this grace is. Let me take it further. Verse 18 of chapter 5. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. He's talking about Adam here, Adam's trespass. Being in Adam versus being in Christ. He says, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, that's Jesus' act, leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, that being Christ, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. You hear that? But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Why the law come? The law came to not only demonstrate our sin, but the law actually increased it. It made it exceedingly sinful. And where our sin increased because of the law, grace abounded all the more. And look what he goes on to say, verse 21. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Here's the thing. We're sinners. We can do nothing to save ourselves. Not one thing. But we keep trying. We keep trying. But we can't do anything. We can't even do anything to secure ourselves. To keep our salvation. God even does that. But we keep trying. Right? And yet God does it all. 
God even gave us a law to show us how sinful we are and how hopeless we are. And not only did he give us that law to show us how sinful we are, but when he gave it to us because we're sinners, it increased our sin because we saw it and thought, I want to do the exact opposite of what I was just told. And yet God's grace abounded all the more to the praise of his glory. In other words, in spite of the fact that we have rejected God in spite of the fact that we have lived lawlessly for ourselves, in spite of all that sin, God says, I love you enough to extend grace to you in my son. And even when you start screwing up, because it's going to happen, even then, not even then, even more so then, will I extend my grace to you and will I hold you to the end? Even more. I did it when you're my enemies. Much more now that you're my friends. You do nothing. Nothing. And when your sin abounds, grace abounds more. And when it abounds more, grace abounds more. And people say this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? Well, Paul, if grace abounds when my sin does... Then why not sin more so that grace abounds more and then God gets more honor, right? Because his grace abounds. And it's a perversion of his gospel. And Paul says, wait a minute, you don't understand. You don't understand. Your objection is completely wrong. You've said if sin's abounding more, then grace is abounding more. So why not sin more so grace may abound? You don't understand what happens when you're justified, do you? When you're forgiven and declared righteous and you're in Christ, when the grace of God comes to you, when that happens, that grace doesn't just triumph over your past sin. It doesn't just get you forgiven. It triumphs over your present sin and your future sin. Hear that? It radically changes you. It doesn't just get you forgiven. It actually changes you so much so your heart is different. And you start to grow. He says this in verse 2. He says this of chapter 6. Excuse me. Yeah, verse 2. By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So when Jesus died on the cross, we died with him. And when he rose, we rose with him spiritually. That happened in history. It was actually accomplished at the cross at that moment in time. My spiritual death, and I don't mean this in the negative sense of spiritual death. You understand what I'm talking about, right? The point at which the old man, the sinful man, died and the new man was risen to new life happened. The point at which that happened was the cross. It was applied to me when I believed, but it was accomplished at the cross. That's what Paul's saying. You're missing the point. If you think that you started by faith, but now you're going to continue by works or that my saying it's all of faith means that you're going to somehow end up in lawlessness. You miss the point. Grace doesn't just accomplish forgiveness. It triumphs over sin in your life. 
Because you're not under the law anymore. You're under grace. Verse 14 of chapter 6 says that. And so that provokes the next question. Well, if we're not under the law, if we're not under its realm and rule and authority, but we're under the realm and rule and authority of grace, then Paul, verse 15, what then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? Paul says, by no means. Don't you understand that grace not only triumphs over your sin, it triumphed over the law. It changes you. It doesn't just bring you forgiveness and the declaration of righteous, righteousness objectively, although that is true. It subjectively changes you. Your heart is made new. Paul said, don't disconnect those things. You miss the point of my gospel if you do. And then he says this, look at verse 17 of chapter 6. But thanks be to God, just to confirm this, that you were once, who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. That's his point. God changed your heart. Chapter 7, he continues on and he says this in verse 4. Likewise, my brothers... You also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. Hear that? Paul just said you died to the law through the body of Christ. When Christ died on the cross, you died to the law. And you what? Belonged to another to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. To which someone, if they read the Bible, says to me, wait a minute, wait a minute. Paul just said we have to die to the law in order to bear fruit for God. But I thought keeping the law would cause us to bear fruit for God. Yes, keeping the law does cause us to bear fruit for God. But until you die to it as your ruler and authority and are married to Christ and your heart is transformed by the power of the Spirit, you will never keep it. That's Paul's point. You won't keep it. Instead of the law bearing fruit for God, it will bear fruit for destruction or death because you're trying to do it on your own and that won't ever happen. You're a sinner. Paul says you can't belong to two spouses at one time. You can't belong to Jesus and belong to the law. Therefore, if you're under the law, you're on your own and you're condemned. And so you have to die to the law with Christ so that you belong to him. It's not a good idea to be married to two people at one time. It's impossible. In fact, um, and and to be fruitful, uh, Mark Twain was actually one time in Utah. I don't know if you guys ever listen, read much about Mark Twain, but he was in Utah at a conference, um, and he was, he was speaking. And after the conference, a, a Mormon guy came to him, true story, and says to him, well, Mark, I don't understand. Mr. Twain, you're saying that um, you think that um, polygamy is wrong. And he said, yeah, of course I think it's wrong. And he said, can you show me one verse in the Bible where it says I can't have more than one wife? And he says, that's an easy one. No one can serve two masters. <laughs> and, and 
The point is, if you're under the mastery of the law, and that's a total tangent, sorry, just had to throw it in. If you're under the mastery of the law, if that is your master, Christ is not. And so you have to be freed from that master by Christ so that you're his. And when you're his, then instead of being under the law, you're under grace. And when you're under grace, you're empowered by the spirit to then keep the law that you could not beforehand. It's a work of God in you. And that's what Paul's trying to make clear to them. He wants his objectors to understand that they've misunderstood how the kind of holiness that's acceptable to God is achieved because they've misunderstood fallen man and the law and the gospel. They've misunderstood the whole thing. All along, the Jews, especially the Jewish Christians in Rome, thought to themselves that the law was able to produce holiness in those who knew it and kept it. It was able to do that. They thought that's what they thought. If you just keep the Ten Commandments, you will become more holy. If you know them and keep them, it's what they thought. And now Paul comes along and says it's not true. Knowing the law and doing the law doesn't produce holiness in the natural man. Just the opposite. The law increases sin in you. You guys have misunderstood all along. Teaching people right and wrong and then telling them to do it doesn't increase holiness in them. It makes them more sinful. That's what it does to the unbeliever, the natural man. It produces in them more sin. Look what he says in verse 5 of chapter 7, our primary passage here today. For a while we were living in the flesh. Hear that? While we were living in the flesh, that's the state of unbelief. That's being unregenerate. Not having our heart changed. While we were living that way, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Hear what the law did? The law bore fruit for death in us. Because why? The law is bad? No. Because we are sinful. While we were sinners, notice Paul uses the past tense here, when you weren't a believer, when you weren't a believer, when you heard the law, it aroused passions in you. Because you weren't a believer, because you were unregenerate, your heart was stone, as it says in Ezekiel 36, because that's where you were in your relationship with God. When you heard the law, it aroused passions in you. That led to sin. That bore fruit for death. Hear that? You guys have completely misunderstood man. That's what Paul's telling his objectors. You completely misunderstood mankind. And you've completely misunderstood the law. And what it's useful for. And it isn't useful for the natural man. Except to show him a sin. And incite more sin in him. It isn't until he's born again and his heart is changed that the law is useful for his sanctification, for his growth in holiness. Think of it. How many of you guys have had uh, children? If you've had children, you know that whatever you tell them not to do is exactly what they want to do. You give them a law. Don't touch. And they think that must be exciting to touch. Right? 
God gives us a law. Don't have sex before marriage. And we think it's got to be fun. It's got to be something to it. I want to do that. It's kind of exciting to get caught up in the sin, isn't it? Be honest. I can talk about my past before I started walking with Jesus. I can tell you that it was more fun for me when I was thinking about ditching class and going with my buddies to get a beer than it was for me when I was thinking about being a good boy. It was more fun. That's where I was. People would give me rules and I would think, how can we find a way to break them? Is that true? That's what Paul says. But yet, somehow, you're hopelessly, endlessly, constantly coming back thinking that you can keep it. And you can't. And it doesn't help you. And preachers mount the pulpit and they say, I'm going to give you three principles for right living today. And I'm going to give you three principles for a good marriage and five principles for a good family and four principles for a good business. And they want, and you know what? Translate the word principle to law. I want to give you law and some more law and some more law and some more law. And eventually you'll change. And they wonder why their congregations aren't changing because they don't know Jesus. That's why they're not changing, because it is when you see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ that you are changed. And until then, you're blind and dead in your sin and transgressions. And the law just incites more sin in you. So wise, when you go home to your unbelieving husbands and you bang your head against the wall, trying to ask them to do the right thing again and again and again, and you wonder why they don't, you need to pray Because they need to be transformed. Because they're not going to do the right thing until God changes them. And the more rules you slap on their lives and the more you nag them, and this goes back the other way if you're a husband with a wife who's unbelieving, and the more you slap nagging little things at them, the more they're going to, what? Rebel. Period. The more it's going to happen. They need transformation. The same thing is true with our kids. We can give them all the rules in the world, but if we don't, tell them the gospel. And if we don't pray for them, and if God does not transform them, they will rebel, period. They may not rebel externally, but they will rebel in their hearts. It happens. Jesus is what is needed. That's what Paul's saying. The law doesn't do it. He says this, in fact, the law does just the opposite. It condemns us. Chapter 8 of Romans, verse 3. Listen to this. For God has done, God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Do you hear that? God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Do you hear that? It's not that the requirement of the law isn't righteous. It's perfectly righteous. It's that we can't keep it because we're sinners. And so Jesus came to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law for us because we couldn't. And the law couldn't bring it about either. It's wrong Paul's saying to think that I'm preaching. That's what Paul says. It's wrong to think or to say that I'm preaching a gospel that leads to sin and lawlessness. I'm not at all. 
It's wrong because you think that the natural man can do something to please God and he cannot. It's wrong because you think the natural man can keep the law when the opposite is true. It's wrong because you don't understand the radical conversion that takes place when a person believes. You don't understand that the old man died and was raised to new life. Instead, Paul really provides us, I think, with four truths um, as to how true sanctification takes place. I want to point those to you real quick. Four things on how true sanctification takes place. And try to go through them quickly. One, true sanctification takes place through a person. Through a person, not a set of principles. Romans 7, 4. Likewise, my brothers, you've died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who's been raised from the dead. Why do you need to belong to Jesus Christ? Why does this person need to change you? In order that we may bear fruit for God. How does your bearing fruit for God or sanctification take place? Through a person, not through a set of principles. Principles are just more law. So when you go into the bookstore and you see seven principles for a better life and ten principles for this and five principles, just throw that junk out and go find a book that tells you about Jesus. I just want to see him and know him and meditate on him and reflect on him. Go buy that book. The books that are completely and totally undersold, by the way, that are in a little department of the bookstore called Theology. And they talk about Jesus. It's amazing, I know. But they do. And the books that are just cramming the shelves are a bunch of, pardon my language, crap. That are telling you more law as to how your life can change. And you just get completely and totally focused on me. And you wonder, why am I not changing? Because when I get more principles, guess what I do? It arouses sin in me. You need to see Jesus if you want to change. It's one of the great areas, errors I see creeping into the church is our abandonment of Jesus in exchange for the exaltation of good living. The abandonment of Jesus in exchange for the exaltation of good living. Here's how you hear it creeping in. What matters is your deeds, not your creeds. It doesn't matter so much what your view of Jesus is as it does that you're sincere. You know who I heard say that? America's um, largest church pastor, Joel Osteen. It doesn't matter what your view of Jesus is, as much as it does that you're sincere. Look, listen, the person of Jesus saves you, not your good works or sincerity. Not your deeds, So what your view of Jesus is and what your creed is, your doctrine is, is far, far more important than your works. Sincerity is useless and even dangerous if you're sincere about the wrong thing. I'll show you a couple sincere guys. The men who flew planes into the Twin Towers were some of the most sincere men on the planet. And they're not saved. They don't know Jesus. They're not growing in holiness. But they're sincere. But you're not saved by sincerity. You're saved by Jesus. 
Not by your deeds, but by him. Second, true sanctification takes place through death to our old man. Not through embracing who we are or trying to die to ourselves. I just gave you a, a totally antithetical statement at the end, so hang with me. True sanctification happens through death, past tense, to our old man. Not through embracing who we are or trying to die to ourselves. Let me explain this. I've seen two antithetical movements that have been happening. Um, They've become popular in the last several years. One is the self-esteem movement, the positive thinking movement, the embrace who you are movement, the your best life now become a better you movement. And it's massively popular. The other is what seems like it's opposite, but really in some ways is the same. And that's the emergent church die to yourself movement. Most um, or best represented by Brian McLaren, Rob Bell and others. What's ironic about both the movements is they both miss the gospel and dive headlong back into the law. Both of them. Joel Osteen just gives you a set of principles by which you can become a better person. That's what? Law. I don't care if the principle is meditate on what a great guy you are. That's a principle that is law that he says will change you, and it won't. Jesus will. The Emergent Church Die to Yourself group, um, Rob Bell specifically, um, just recently came out with a video called Tomato Um, which is popular. He has a set of videos called NUMA videos. One of them is called Tomato, in which he says that Jesus' death um, and resurrection really is kind of an analogy for our life. He doesn't talk about the objective nature of Christ dying on the cross and raised from the dead because he's punished for our sins and he raises from the dead and gives us new life. What he says is that's an example of how we should live. That's all it is, by the way, for him. Jesus died to self. And he's risen to new life. And so if you want to have new life, you have to die to self. Do you hear what he's getting at there? It's kind of right, isn't it? Jesus is a good example. No doubt about it. Jesus says to die to self. No doubt about it. However, it's desperately wrong for one reason. It misses the objective nature of the cross where we died with Christ Paul doesn't say get crucified with Christ. He says, what? I am crucified with Christ. Past tense. I died with him. Christ is not just my example. He's my substitute. He paid the wrath of God for me on the cross. And I died with him. And I've been risen to new life. And now I can die to self. He wants us to get to die to self is the means to salvation. And what the gospel says is death is how you then can die. It's death with Christ and rising new life that you can then die. And he messes the whole thing up and it's popular. And he actually calls one of the, he's one of the guys who calls penal substitution, um, cosmic child abuse. The idea that the father crushed his son on our behalf, he calls cosmic child abuse. That's pretty, pretty strong statement. Third, we are sanctified through faith, not through right behavior. And I'll just say it this way. 
Too many people think faith is how we're saved and good behavior is how we grow. Wrong. What does Paul say? I've been crucified with Christ and yet I live. Not I, but Christ who lives within me. And the life I live, I live how? By good works? No, by faith. You hear that? Life I live, I live by faith. It's through seeing Christ for all he is, in faith trusting him that we're changed, not through behavior. Fourth and finally, we are changed through the spirit, not through the law. Through the spirit, not through the law. Romans 7, 6, what does it say here? But now we're released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the spirit. The law just incites sin in us, which is why moralistic preaching is so bad. And what Paul wants to say is, you don't need the law to be saved and sanctified, although the law will come about in your life, but it happens through the Spirit. He's talking about an, a shift in it's like an epochal shift that happens here. It says right here in verse 6, not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. Paul knew that they could not keep the law and God would send his Spirit in the new covenant to indwell them and give them new birth and cause them to keep his law. He knew that would happen. He knew that would happen. Why? Ezekiel 36, 25. Listen to the promise. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put it within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. How does that happen? How do we keep the law? God puts a spirit in us and causes us to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's what Paul's referring to here. And that's what we're going to talk about in Romans chapter 8. It's what does life in the spirit look like? But what he wants us to understand is that apart from Christ and his indwelling spirit, apart from Christ and his indwelling spirit, the law held us captive. It encouraged sin in us. And it bore fruit that led to death and condemned us. That's what the law accomplished. In Christ and through his indwelling spirit, our old man has died. We've been raised to new life. And now we finally bear fruit for God. See, Paul's doctrine of sanctification is really pretty simple. Do you want to know what it is? Trust Jesus and he'll send his spirit to indwell you. And you'll change. That's it. The law won't do it. Good behavior won't do it. Just trust Jesus. He'll send his spirit to indwell you. And you will change. You will change. Not you should change. You will change. Should you? Yes. But I want you to understand what Paul's saying here in this text. He's saying you will. It's a guarantee. It's not even a question. You want to see your spouse change or your children change or your coworker change or people around you change or you want to change? Trust Jesus and his spirit will change you. That's it. Pray that they'll trust Jesus and his spirit will change them. 
It's really that simple. It's just we convolute the whole stinking thing. But it's that basic. Trust Jesus and His Spirit will come and change you. Let me pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word and its truth and we rejoice in You and the fact that You are good, that You change us. It's nothing that we do on our own. It is entirely a work of You. Lord, we're thankful that You have not only justified us in Christ, forgiven us of our sins and declared us righteous, but that You sanctify us, that You are actually working by the power of Your Spirit to bear fruit for God. Lord, that You have changed our hearts so that we desire to keep the law rather than desire to rebel. We pray for those we know, Lord, who don't know You. We pray that we would not... um, attempt to try to conform their behavior to standards we want, but that we would teach them the gospel or that we would pray for their salvation so they would change by the power of your spirit, power of your grace triumphing in their lives. For your son's name we pray. Amen.